0: House Republican introduces bill to give Biden sweeping authorities to wage war in Ukraine. The legislation by Republican Representative Adam Kinzinger will authorize war with Russia in response to, guess what? WMDs. For insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back.
1: Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour.
0: Yesterday, Kinzinger, Republican from Illinois, announced a new authorization for use of military force. If passed, the bill will allow Biden to deploy American troops to defend Ukraine if Russia uses chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons. And I don't believe that Biden even really has to show much evidence in order to support that claim. Mark Schlabota, haven't we seen this movie before? It's called Iraq, and I use this analogy all the time. I am one of my favorite films is The Godfather. And in fact, it was on yesterday. Every time I watch the film, I yell to Sonny Corleone, don't answer the phone. Don't answer the phone. And then when he does, I yell, don't go to the causeway, Sonny. Don't go to the causeway. And every time I watch the film, Sonny Corleone dies on the causeway. The film doesn't change. As in this, Iraq should be the uh, precedent for us to understand these lies don't work? Mark Sloboda.
1: Yeah, I think your analogy makes perfect sense because uh, the authorization of use of military force is the phone. There you go. Don't don't answer the phone. (laughs) All right. So, I mean, we we have an author another open ended authorization of use of military force uh, passed in you know uh, the early two thousands that is still being used to justify U uh, uh, S military uh, force occupation of Syria all over the Middle East right um, and uh, this is you know something that anyone who has any fear at all of uh, conflict with Russia and the spiral down in the nuclear conflict that that could cause uh, should should make you afraid because it makes me afraid. Um, The there is absolutely no oversight or, you know, um, means of determining the use of chemical weapons, uh, in this, uh, or, or any other type of weapons, weapons of mass destruction in this authorization for use of military force. And we have already heard more than one claim, uh, coming out of Ukraine, including, uh, one from the, uh, leader of Azov, Um, in uh, Mariupol, claiming that Russia used chemical weapons. Uh, Now, never mind that no one paid them any attention at the time, Um, you know, you can see where this type of crying wolf scenario, uh, can be used to justify, well, in this case, uh, the, the wolf from across the Atlantic getting involved in this conflict directly. Um, it is a formula for disaster because it is a red flag signal to, just like happened in Syria, for every radical in the country, or 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 the the radical uh, in in Bankova in um, uh, Kiev, uh, Zelensky uh, saying that if some type of chemical weapon is used in the country by someone, and the blame can be cast at Russia, um, then. Uh, that is what will trigger a U.S. military intervention uh, against, and which would mean a NATO military intervention against Russia. And uh, no one knows where what where that goes from there. I mean, we all have an idea where it could go, but we, we, we just don't know. So this is extremely dangerous. Uh, I sincerely hope for uh, the Russian people, for the American people, and everyone else on the planet that this does not pass through. But I'm afraid that
2: it will yeah it's it's you know right off the bat uh you know you the azov battalion will be like hey we just got a uh we just got the word to move forward with the wmd hoax all right let's go just get it rolling uh, find some uh, some chlorine or something to sprinkle around um, uh, it, it, going down that line of uh dangerous uh, uh things that are being done so we've got NATO war games in Poland there have been discussions of Poland um, you know all kinds of things in that part of in that region everything from possibly moves on Moldova and Transnistria and Poland trying to grab part of Western Ukraine what are your thoughts on the nato war games and we know that um turkey's like ah, i want no parts of this so what what do we what do we need to know
1: yeah we well, what we're seeing is already we are seeing this conflict expand right um it's not just in ukraine it's not just in ukraine and russia because we've seen Kiev is still capable of making uh, multiple pinpicks uh, strikes in Russia um, at oil depots and residential buildings and the like. Um, but now we are seeing conflict in the Black Sea and we are seeing conflict in Moldova. Um, there were explosions in Transnistria, the uh, breakaway uh, region of Transnistria from the early 1990s. Um, and. There is – where, where uh, Transnistria is, there is an extremely large arms depot, one of the largest, if not the largest in Europe, that can train, contains a huge amount of weapons that were left over from the Warsaw Pact withdrawal, um, uh, the Soviet withdrawal from the Warsaw Pact. Um, and which means there is a huge stockpile of weapons. Uh, Some of them are are no longer serviceable. Uh, Many of them, uh, including ammunition, may be. And that is supplies that uh, are exactly what the Kiev regime forces are using the most. Uh, Soviet built weapons that they know how to use how to fix how to maintain already uh you know have training on that sort of thing uh so the potential for that conflict to expand in there is extremely dangerous and with the continued flood of western weapons across the border from poland into Western Ukraine, Russian strikes in Western Ukraine, and now giant NATO military exercises in Poland right on the border of that conflict, um, you know, where uh, we saw the U.S. president just recently visit. Um, There is all kinds of potential here for escalation, both intended and unintended.
0: Going back to your point about the crying wolf scenario, we also saw this in Syria with the allegations that uh, Assad was gassing his own people. But in terms of this current conflict – uh, we all remember it, it was just a couple of weeks ago that this whole discussion about chemical weapons and the use of chemical weapons was brought up. Uh, unnamed sources in the Pentagon came out and said they have no evidence of such. Victoria Nuland in Congress testifying to the fact that I think she said we have no evidence of such uh, and, and but still talking about U.S. facilities in Ukraine and. Uh, so we've already been primed for this allegation. NBCnews.com came out with a, with, a, with a whole discussion about, well, we know basically this was a lie, but it was a noble lie because we were trying to beat uh, Putin to the punch. So we've already we've heard the story. The story has already been refuted, but it's still being used as a uh, plausible, excuse for the United States to get deeper into this mess. Mark Sloboda.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, despite this being quietly poo-pooed by the Pentagon that said they have no evidence that Russia is preparing chemical or um, any other type of weapons of mass destruction uh, for use in Ukraine or anywhere near the country. Um, It doesn't stop the narrative and it, it doesn't really, you know, uh, th- those type of um, withdrawals of comments or corrections. They don't public penetrate the public consciousness, so they don't change the narrative. And uh, there are people in Washington, in Brussels, in London that want a Russian NATO conflict, and you should not doubt that there are. And exactly the ones that are pushing uh, this authorization of use of military force that we talked about earlier are exactly some of those people. There's no indication that Biden even wants this bill to be passed. But if it is, I'm sure that politically, because of the public hysteria and Driven by the media, and we have to remember how much of this is driven by an absolutely—I don't want to say war mongering, but war slavering media fourth the state—that um, uh, he will feel that he has to sign it, and then it's in his hands, and the pressure on him to use it at the slightest, you know, uh, cry of of. WMDs from neo-Nazis uh, you know, in Ukraine, like Azov, like we've already seen before, um, is going to start putting pressure on him to use it. And uh, that's
2: that's a, a very bad situation for him to be in. Um, the UN confirms evacuation of civilians underway from Ukraine's Mariupol. What do we know about what's up? There's civilians coming out. And here, let me give you a quick thought. You know what I thought? If I'm in an Azov Nazi, let's just say, and I'm in Azovstal hanging out, I'm getting rid of those people because there's only so much food and water to go around. At some point, I'm like, "Hey, we got a lot of hungry mouths to feed. They got to go one way or the other." At any rate,
0: your thought on the and there uh, are witnesses to what they what what the what the Azov battalion's been doing. Yeah. So, your thoughts, Mark?
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, there is, I mean, yeah. There's a, a certain point in a siege in underground tunnels like this uh, where your human shields start becoming a um, a, a liability. Problem- a- when you're, yeah, liability, when you're running out of, uh, food and water and, and other things. And toilet paper. Um, yeah. So, um, there, again, it's not clear exactly how many people are down there. Um, how many people are left down there now that it's more than 100 have been brought out. Um, but it's, said uh by a Ukrainian's top negotiator at the talks with Moscow David Arakamula, that uh there's still lots of people there uh, whether that means civilians who they are or that they are families of Azov is he just talking about Azov I mean uh Azov battalion and and a handful of marines that are still there with them and and their foreign guests as well we don't know uh we don't know if there's anyone still down there, but we do know that uh, some people have been brought out because we've gotten some U.N. confirmation of that. And evidently, some of them were allowed uh, to be brought through humanitarian corridor to Ukraine-controlled uh, town in uh, – Kiev regime-controlled town in Zaporozhye. And some of them uh, were allowed to uh, go to Russian-controlled territory in East Ukraine. So um, – obviously it appears that people were given a choice and some exercised one and some exercised uh, the other um and again we don't know how many of these people it seems likely that at least some of them are family members of uh, azov uh in uh, uh mariupol in, in this uh, besieged uh, steel fortress and underground uh, tunnel network in Azov's stall. uh but It's a good thing that at least some people uh, got out. Uh, This negotiation has been kept kind of quiet. It kind of snuck up and was just announced. We can only hope that uh, for any other civilians who might be down there uh, with the Kiev regime's state-armed and funded neo-Nazi death squad uh, that seem to be uh, refusing to surrender and uh, wanting to go to their glorious Hmm. end, uh, that that whoever's civilians are left down there can be brought out yet.
0: March Laboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. Consortium News account and may seize its balance. The online payment system gave no warning or reason why Consortium News's account has been permanently limited. PayPal indicated that only if applicable will the balance be returned. What does this say about freedom of speech in the U.S. and the protection of democracy that the Biden administration claims to be defending? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He is editor-in-chief of Consortium News and a former U.N correspondent for The Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe, and numerous other newspapers, including the Montreal Gazette and the star of Johannesburg, Joe Lauria. Joe, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me on again. So PayPal has canceled your account without any prior notice or due process and virtually no explanation, telling you you can't use PayPal anymore. They noticed activity in your account that's inconsistent with their user agreement and they no longer offer your services. That's one thing, and that in and of itself would be atrocious, but to add insult to injury, you had about $10,000 in the account, and they're seizing that without due process or explanation. Please explain, Joe Lauria. I wish I could, <laughs> that's the problem here. How could they do such a thing? Well, I
3: did a little digging uh, into their user agreement And I found that they have a section called Restricted Activities, one of which says uh, it's restricted to provide, quote, false, inaccurate, or misleading information to PayPal, other PayPal customers, or, quote, third parties, which could be the public. So I don't have any firm evidence why they did this, who did it, who was behind this. The explanation given to me by a customer service agent was quite good. She probably told me a little more than she should have. But I think that this uh, is very clearly led to our coverage of the Ukraine war. And that is because we have not uh, stuck to the one narrative that's being enforced on everyone. And that is that Ukraine is winning the war. Russia is 100% guilty here. And uh, we have to stand with Ukraine. Now, we are not supporting this war. We're not supporting Russia. Uh, we are trying to give the context for this war to explain the causes of the war. And in history, you can explain that the Versailles Treaty helped uh, the, the onerous terms on the Nazis will help raise uh, the, that movement and led to World War II. That's could be said now uh, historically without any allegation that you're excusing or justifying what the Nazis did. So we are not. Excusing justice, that's not our role. Our role is to try to give information to explain what is going on there. So, that uh, information about we provide coverage that the corporate media is uh, excising from there. Reports and such as the role that the 2014 coup played, and there's overwhelming evidence the U.S. was involved in that, with the Victoria Newland leaked conversation with the American ambassador. The role of neo Nazis in that society, which is being totally downplayed or excused, even though corporate media ran a lot of articles in 2014 about that. It doesn't matter that they get two percent of the vote in Parliament. They are they are infiltrating the police. And certainly, they're they're incorporated into the state military structure. No other nation on earth that we know of. Uh, has done such a thing. Uh, and we talk about the causes of the war being that the US ignored and NATO ignored treaty proposals by Russia, didn't even take them seriously, did not do anything to implement the Minsk Accords that would have ended an eight year civil war against Donbass, uh, Russian speakers who resisted that coup. That isn't never mentioned at all. That's just gone. So. We, uh that's the full, so-called false, inaccurate and misleading information, I think, that PayPal, PayPal and others are referring to. Uh, in our view, this is not false, it's inaccurate, and it's certainly not misleading. One could say that about the corporate media coverage of the war, but it's not being tolerated to have any other account. It's really a total control of media on the Ukraine war that the authorities in the U.S. seem to be enforcing, and that's a very obviously – dangerous thing we're not a very large website we have mostly ten thousand readers a day but during the ukraine war we've been up to 40 20 to 40 people are hungry for it, a different point of view and nobody has to agree with us you know and i don't know why they just but they i mean the authorities who's ever behind this why they don't just agree just they should just disagree with us and leave us alone let us do our thing but no, they want to stop any little spark of dissent because it could turn into a fire. It just shows how weak their position is really because they know that they're not providing an accurate account of, what's, of what the causes of the war were or probably what's going on on the ground either. Although we don't, we try to stay away from that because it's very difficult to know what's happening on the ground. But the causes, the context, this is something that we're not, uh, uh, not that we're not being allowed to, but they're trying to shut us down, obviously. Now, we asked the Customer agent, customer service agent at PayPal yesterday. What two things? um, Was there any? Were there any complaints against us? Um, And by a government agency or a private or an individual? She said there was no case history that indicated that. So who started this thing? Was this initiated by PayPal? We know that the from public congressional hearings that Facebook and Google and Twitter executives were there and testifying and were browbeaten in full light of uh, the cameras that they had to do more to stop this information, mostly from Russia. So uh, are they doing this behind the scenes with PayPal? We'll probably never know that. And the other question is about the money. What does it mean that they, they, if it's applicable, they will get in touch with us after six months to after their review to see whether we can get the money back or not? What does that mean? And she said... Uh, I asked her if it was possible they could keep it. She said if there was a violation, it's possible the money could be kept as damages to PayPal. So somehow, if they could, in a convoluted way, uh, argue that uh, they were damaged because they were somehow associated with this coverage that is maybe causing violence in Ukraine because we uh, don't support the right narrative. That they could keep that money, and this is, of course, a completely closed, secret process where any evidence they may have is not being shared with us, and they, unlike a judge or a a jury that awards damages, can award themselves damages, That, i.e., our funds that they seized. This is an extraordinary situation.
2: Joe, to me, there's a couple of things going on here. There are a lot of people and organizations that are being significantly hurt by this. But in addition, I see this new Department of Homeland Security disinformation government board as related. And it's exactly what you were saying. You know, there are alternative media sources that are providing information. And when I look at these stories now that pop up on social media and I look at the comments, I see that they are starting to lose, that more and more people are starting to, you know, uh, find uh, facts and to challenge some of these absurd assertions that are being made. And I feel as though that they are getting desperate, that this is part of a desperate pushback. And in particular, I'd like to get your thoughts on this disinformation governance board and how that relates. You mean Mary Poppins? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is just um, – I'll tell you
3: what I think. Woodrow Wilson in 1917 in the Espionage Act tried to get a, a clause in there to actually establish government censorship. And it was defeated by one vote in a Senate committee. So then he put the uh, – later, a year later, he put in the uh, an amendment, the Sedition Act, which – the Alien and Sedition Act, which landed a lot of people in jail for speech. Uh, but that was – only short lived in 2 or 3 years it was repealed it was clearly unconstitutional so 100 years ago wilson tried to get it and today we are now seeing the government censorship that he dreamed of coming true and why i think it's because of social media that has a big role technology changes the way information from the government or propaganda can be disseminated, and even up until the, the days of before social media, when we just television, especially in the days when there were just three networks, it was very easy to tightly control what the government wanted to disseminated to the people through private corporate media, over which they have indirect control. We know that. They still do. But with social media, you have two possibilities. People can start their own webcasts, their own publications, and they can get huge numbers of followers on Twitter and Facebook where they can put out a different message. So they've lost control of that narrative. And that makes them very nervous. And also corporate media doesn't like the competition as well because they, their own accounts are now being held up to scrutiny like never before. Before social media, you might watch a TV report and then discuss it with your coworkers at the water cooler or at home with your friends. But that was about the extent of what you could say in your criticism of it. But today, anyone with a modem can now make those criticisms. So this kind of censorship, which is now this Homeland Security department of governance board misinformation uh, disinformation governance board is direct government censorship before they were using the social media companies and in this case probably PayPal to and they're going to continue to do that but they were they were using them as proxies the way they're using Ukraine as a proxy to fight Russia so and that's the supreme court decision that said that the government can't do that so even you know they cannot force or ask or have a, a non-government entity do what they can, what the government cannot do legally, i.e., censorship, because of the First Amendment. So now they are getting so bold that they've gone beyond that, and they don't seem to care. You look at Joe Biden in 2010 when he was vice president; he said that the government could not indict uh, uh, Julian Assange unless they proved that he stole the government information. If it was handed to him as a journalist, they couldn't touch him. Now he's the president now, and he's still he's still prosecuting. Uh, Assange won't let him go. So something has changed radically here, and we've moved into a whole new phase of very frightening uh, control of speech in the United States that I thought I would never see, be honest with you. I dreamed I thought
0: it might happen, but I didn't think I'd ever see. I'm very big on in in trying to highlight the censorship issue, because to your point, in terms of the First Amendment, the government can punish you once you publish. But the government, according to the Supreme Court, cannot prevent you from publishing. Uh, so that, that's right. That is, and, and then also, when you look at this executive, this, this fitness board executive director, we now have an unelected official who is now acting as though she is, in fact, the Supreme Court as it relates to censorship. And this is a very, very dangerous uh, issue. I hate to use the term slippery slope, but that's exactly what we're on. And there is hardly any—well, there is pushback to it, but it's not resonating to the degree that it should.
3: Well, you're actually right. You make a good point. That's called prior restraint, and the exactly. Pentagon Papers' Supreme Court decision ruled that you cannot stop a publication beforehand from publishing something. If they should break a law like the Espionage Act, then you can't prosecute, and there were almost were prosecutions in the Pentagon Papers case uh, of the New York Times. Uh, Nixon impounded a grand jury in Boston, fell apart. When the whole fiasco with Van Ellsberg happened, so uh, this is this Homeland Security Department. If it shuts down publications, in other words, preventing them from publishing, one could make a prior restraint argument. And you just um, made me realize that maybe in our own case here, this could be a prior restraint argument because they taking action is. to help us from from help to, to prevent us from being funded. Now we have other sources of funding and. And uh, that alone is not going to destroy us, but this could be the first step in other actions taking against people like us because it just always comes in gradual steps. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, could they go after our bank accounts? And now there's no laws here. This is the thing. You could put sanctions on a Russian oligarch. Or you could see, you could seize three hundred billion dollars in Russian assets inside the U.S. There is a law. I mean, the Congress passed laws. There are sanctions laws, and the Treasury Department acts on that. Whether we agree with it or not, it's legal. But I, I should mention that you know, and I don't want to equate U.S. with Nazi Germany, but the Nazis justified a lot of their crimes with laws, Correct. their racial laws, for example. So you could make up a law that would allow PayPal to do this if they if they lose this case. Now there is. A class action suit going on now. It was begun in January in California. Uh, three people, I believe, have sued PayPal for doing exactly what they did to us. And there was a fourth, and he was a world poker champion, and he uh, started asking other people to join in, and then he just gave him his money back so he'd go away. Um uh, so there, are, there is a chance, there is apparently at least one legal process against this behavior, but who knows if they don't come up with laws in this environment we're in now. Start making laws to justify criminal behavior, and then it's no longer criminal.
0: You have a couple. You have a First Amendment process here. You have, a, I think, a Fourth Amendment due process uh, issue here, and it's important to realize People forget that the uh, Bill of Rights was written and designed to protect the American citizens against action by the government. That's why many of the Bill of Rights are called negative rights, because they start with the government shall not. Not all of them, but many of them start with the government shall not. And the reason was because the framers of the Constitution were very concerned about the government overreaching, overextending its power, acting like a king or a, or a uh, independent sovereign against the will of the people. And that's what's actually been done to you.
3: Go to go to Hugo Black's opinion in the Pentagon Papers case, in which he says, and I'm paraphrasing, that the government gave the First Amendment and the power to the press to to uh, censure the press, not so that the government wouldn't censor their cover, their, the, the press. You see, the, this is, it, it's for the government, the government, it's the press who presses for the government, not the governors. We are protected by this First Amendment. So that this very thing doesn't happen, I'd be very surprised if this is not challenged in
0: court. Joe Lauria, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. Uh, We look forward to having you back.
3: Okay. Thank you very much, you guys. Uh, Thank you. you.
0: Thank you. Folks, you are uh, listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Gardner Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. David Sirota and Andrew uh, Perez have a piece in the Leveler entitled The Means Test Con. Limiting student debt relief is cynicism masquerading as populism, and it will just enrage everyone. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of missouri Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. In response to a question from a young person concerned about student loan debt and a lack of economic opportunity back in October of 2020, Then Senator Biden, candidate Biden, said, I'm going to eliminate your student debt if you come from a family making less than one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars and went to a public university. He also said, I'm going to make sure everyone gets ten thousand dollars knocked off their student debt. In response to economic hardships caused by the pandemic, he further proposed giving young people another fifteen thousand dollar credit towards a down payment on their first home. Quote, this is how people accumulate wealth, he said. This is how people get started. We have to recognize you and advance you. You are the future. We're a long way from that, Dr. Linwood uh in, in fact, when uh President-elect Biden was asked whether student loan cancellation figured into his economic recovery plan. He declared it should be done immediately. Student debt is holding people up, he said on November 16, 2020. They're in real trouble. They're having to make choices between paying their loans and paying their rent. I'm not going to talk about Pete Buttigieg and Hillary Clinton. I'll just go to you, Dr. Tahid. We are a long way from what Joe Biden said. And he was right. Yes, yes, he he was right in how he campaigned. He um,
4: uh, uh, appeared to understand the problem that this enormous uh, debt that um, mostly young people, but but, you know, the debt has gone on for for decades for us, So it's not not just young folks who have this debt. Uh, We are in the one point seven trillion going to a two trillion level in student debt, and, and this debt is a, is a drag on the ability of people to, to spend. It, uh, the evidence is that it has slowed down uh, the, uh, the marrying uh, process for, for young people who are not wanting to, to get married and bring uh, enormous debt into their marriages. It certainly slowed down their ability to to buy homes. And, of course, it, it, it exacerbates that if they can't um, uh, pay their debt because they're, they're not working or not making sufficient income. And uh, they, they go into default. Then that, of course, affects their credit for a significant amount of time making unable for them to buy homes. And most Americans have uh, build their wealth through home ownership. And so, so this, this student debt has a tremendous drag on the economy, uh, present and future.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, Dr. Tawhid, uh, let me ask you this. You know, uh, I know you're familiar with slabs, student loan, what is it, student loan asset backed securities where they take these student loans and they package them up and they chop them into a million pieces and they sell those million pieces with the claims that somehow that's going to pay something at some point and nobody at some point even really knows what it is anymore. It's kind of magic. I've thought that maybe there's no real way, two things, I'll throw at you, there's no way to really forgive them because they're all chopped up into asset-backed securities and that would, the you know, spiral out of control and fall downhill. And number two, even if you did it, the fundamental system in five, ten more years, you're going to have the same thing over again because you're talking about a systemic problem that's just going to recreate that. And what are you going to do? It's almost like 2008. You create this monster, it blows up, and then you just buy it out every so many years. At any rate, your thoughts? Yes,
4: yeah, there, there's evidence uh, yeah, showing that the the huge increase in, in the expense of education is being funded by by the quote ability or the availability of student loans so we have a we have a churning process where uh, uh, student loans are are being made available and uh, you, you can't get to get to college unless you get a student loan because the, the tuition and, and costs are so high and then uh, uh, colleges and universities are increasing their tuition because they uh, their, their students can get loans. So we have this reciprocal process of escalating costs leading to escalating debt. And uh, so, yes, there's a, sy- a systemic process that of, of uh, that uh, student loans that forgiving student loans will will will, will affect and, and and alleviate the debt on current borrowers, but uh, won't won't alleviate the expense for for future uh, students. And so we we have to have a two-pronged problem. We have to get back to uh, the type of educational expense that we used to have in this country, where in many places, a uh, person could go to public colleges pretty much free. And we have to we have to so we have to do both of those things unless we recreate this problem over and over again.
0: Switching gears, America's sanctions on Russia are hurting the U.S. in a profound way and taxpayers will bear the cost, says Citadel's Ken Griffin, while the West's retaliatory sanctions squeeze Russia's economy. They will have repercussions on the U.S. that its citizens will pay for, according to Citadel CEO Ken Griffin. He starts off by talking about America is weaponizing the U.S. dollar. Your thoughts, Dr. Taheed?
4: Yeah, I want to kind of push back on on that a bit in terms of the U.S. weaponizing the dollar as if this is a new thing. The, the, the dollar has been, has been weaponized since, since the end of World War II. When, when the dollar becomes the default uh, uh, primary currency in the world, you have the IMF and the World Bank that are are, are making loans to quote developing countries in dollars and uh, and and the dollar becomes the default currency and and uh, these countries can 't go anywhere else to get uh, loans which which now indebts them and so the, weapon, the the dollar has been weaponized what this current situation of sanctions is actually doing is uh, it will it will lead to a, a, a weakening of the weaponized potential of the dollar because we have Russia and China and India and other countries, uh, most of the countries in the world that are not backing the sanctions and looking to do trade with each other, uh, making perhaps the one, uh, the Chinese currency, an alternative to the dollar. But, but, uh, what's, what's, what's actually occurring is that the, the trading agreements among those non-dollar, uh, countries is, is going to be done in their sovereign currency, uh, which, uh, actually gives them more, uh, freedom so that, uh, the Indians can do, uh, can buy things from the Russians with rupees instead of having to get rubles. And, and so the dollar becomes, uh, the currency of the West, of, of the U.S. and, and the Euro. Uh, and the rest of the world will, will, will be moving uh, away from dollars as, as, that, um, as, as that system is being built of trade of, uh, outside of the dollar. And so uh, this, this current sanctions is actually moving uh, into a process of de-dollarization. Which which makes weaponizing the dollar even more more difficult.
2: You know, one of the things that's talked about now, and, and is of course de-dollarization and the fact that the dollar could at some point become no longer the reserve, the world's reserve currency. And you know, there's all kind of speculation. Well, that would then mean total collapse, or oh, we'd be okay, or what have you. In your opinion, in your expert opinion, if that comes to pass what does that mean for the us economy what does that mean for the average person what's the reality is that complete economic disaster for all of us or does it just change the paradigm in a way like when the when the pound sterling crashed and the and and the brits had to abandon their imperialist notions
4: well what 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 happens is is that you know the dollar and the strength of the dollar and and the us currency becomes a reflection of their ability to trade with other other countries and so as as we enter a a multipolar world in terms of trade and we have uh you know uh, developing countries that are doing more trade with uh with russia and china than they are with the u.s um that 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 will have an effect on the u.s economy for example uh you can buy a t-shirt from uh, made in china for five dollars if, uh, if 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 uh, the U.S. is no longer buying its T-shirts from China, and is in trading ag- agreements with Euro, then that 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 T-shirt from Germany is going to be fifty dollars. And and so if if we have a a trading block between the U.S. and and the um, European Union, instead of trading with countries that can make these goods cheaply, then the prices of goods in this country are going to. Uh, are going to accelerate we will have extreme inflation uh in this country uh, as a result of, and now that what that means is that the value of the dollar has has declined in the world market and so uh it the, the roundabout effect of the, of the dollar is caused by the inability to 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 trade with countries that the US is currently trading with because they've They've de-dollarized and begun to trade in the eastern, the Eurasian bloc, instead of the European-American block.
0: The Fed will plunge the U.S. into a major recession by hiking rates above 5 percent. Deutsche Bank predicts the Federal Reserve will plunge into this recession. Uh, the lenders, economists... Led by David uh, Fulkerts, uh, Landau said in a note last week they believe the Fed will have to raise interest rates much higher than analysts currently expect to successfully stamp down on inflation. Your thoughts, Dr. Tahi?
4: Yes, uh, the current the current uh, federal funds rate, the interest rate that the Federal Reserve charges to to banks for to borrow, is a half a percent um the the fed has uh, has about six more interest rate hikes that is projected for to 2022 uh if each of those interest rate hikes goes at a half a percent uh, we end up at the end of the year with a three and a half percent uh interest rate now this article is 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 uh, uh projecting interest rate hikes above 5% uh 5 and 6% and and that that can happen if the fed is even more aggressive than than it has planned to be because it, it can't get a handle on inflation and certainly any interest rate hikes uh, uh, that that end up being five and six percent at the at the end of the year are are, are going to are going to cause a uh, uh a recession and may not have very much of an effect on on inflation because the current inflationary situation is not a demand driven inflation it's not it 's not that people have too much money it 's a supply driven inflation and and when you raise interest rates you, you 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 do two things you suppress demand but you also suppress supply and if you suppress both of those there's no reason for the cost of goods uh, to to decline so we can end up uh, not only with uh, recession, but we can end up with inflation. What we what we call stagflation, which is the the worst of both possible worlds. Uh, Deutsche Bank is predicting that this will happen in 2023. Um, I actually think that is going to happen sooner, uh, by, because the supply chain crisis is not going away. That's also adding to inflation. And then we have the, the, the sanctions, uh, the Russian
2: sanctions. Yeah, July 1st, if we if they say that there's two straight um, two quarters, then I kind of think we're there.
4: Yeah, we, we, we've we had a decrease in, in in gross domestic product for the first quarter of uh, 2022. A recession officially is two consecutive declines in, in, in gross domestic product. And so if this if this second if this quarter we're in now uh ends up in a decline we are officially in a recession that's the beginning of the recession recessions of course can go deeper and deeper into into depression which is there's no official designation for depression because that would be politically suicide uh but uh but if the, re- if the recession starts now uh we can end up in very bad situation by the end of the
0: year whose interests are being served by Attacking the problem in this manner.
4: Yeah, the, the interest of finance is being being served because banks, uh, lenders, uh, the the the, 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 more. the value of the money. Yeah, the, yeah, the the value of the money that they receive in return uh, for their loans uh, is is depreciated by inflation. Okay. Uh, of course, what the, those who get hurt on the other side are, are workers. Okay. Uh, who are who are hit by inflation, but also uh, recession uh, causes unemployment.
0: Dr. Linwood Taheed, as always, sir. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you, folks. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is an open memo to the president. You'll find it at antiwar.com. And uh, intel vets, nuclear weapons cannot be uninvented. It opens, mainstream media have marinated the minds of most Americans in a witch's brew of misleading information on Ukraine and on the exceedingly high stakes of the war. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He leads the Speaking Truth to Power section of Tell the World, a publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner-city Washington. He served as a CIA analyst for 27 years, from the administration of Kennedy to that of George H.W. Bush. His duties included chairing national intelligence estimates and preparing the President's Daily Brief, which he briefed One on one to President Ronald Reagan's five most senior national security advisors from 81 to 85, co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity and co-author of this piece, Ray McGovern. As always, Ray, welcome back. Thank you. So what is it that motivated you all to draft this open memo to the president?
5: Well, as most folks know, we have this record of warning presidents when they're about to do something really stupid. Uh, on the day of uh, Colin Powell's speech to the UN, 5 February 2003, uh, we got together and, and wrote that same day an appreciation of the the speech as being far from what was necessary to justify any kind of war. And we warned the president he needs to really find a, a wider circle of advisors. Otherwise, catastrophe was, was in the works. Uh, we take no take no joy in having me write about that. What we see now is a president uh, who is more and more uh, being convinced, or people are trying to convince him, uh, that the prospect of uh, the use of nuclear weapons is really so remote that it's just an empty threat. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that pe- wise people like uh, his advisors can discount. We think that's not only false, but that's very dangerous. Because well, right now we have a situation where the uh, Secretary of Defense has pretty much said that we're out to weaken Russia. We're out to prevent them from doing the kinds of things they did in Ukraine. Uh, It's become very clear that this is a, a broader war, a U.S. or U.S. and NATO against Russia, and this is really the first time. I've been around a while, and nuclear-armed states don't usually threaten other nuclear-armed states uh, with, uh, with action to put them out of existence, with existential threats, let's put it that way. Now, the way things are developing in Ukraine, it's become an existential threat to Putin. To Russia? To the United States? You know, what, what are, we, are, are we under threat from Ukraine? No, we're not. Uh, so it's an existential threat. What does that mean? That means that Putin has to win, that Russia has to win. Now, the question is, can they win? And if you look at the map, and if you look at the major ally that Putin now has in China— Uh, Any sensible person says that they can win and they have to win. And that means that if the United States and NATO back Putin into a corner, so as it become difficult for him to win, he's going to do precisely what he has uncharacteristically boasted he would do, and that is employ his nuclear weapons. Now, they don't have to be the big thing. He doesn't have to shoot off the ICBMs. Uh, but he has these incredibly, <laughs> incredibly fast-moving hypersonic missiles that can pinpoint uh, someplace in, in Europe and, and destroy it and uh, just to, to show that he's well-equipped to face down any threat. So it's become really, really really, really dangerous, if if, uh, Biden has been given the idea that they can wear Russia down, that they can send in billions and billions of pounds of weaponry into Ukraine, uh, that weaponry, I'm sad to say, is going to be blown up as soon as the Russians detect it coming across the border – I mean that's good for the weapons manufacturers. They'll have to make still more, just like they did when Petraeus' well-trained troops left the, left the battlefield and left all those other weapons we 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 supplied to the Iraqis and the Afghans in the field. So the only people that benefit from this whole thing is the Mickey Mat, the military-industrial congressional complex, and uh, it's just not going to be very smart if. <laughs> Let me just do a little prediction here. In the next week or two, military analysts that I trust say that Russia gonna start winning big time. When they flush those people out of the bottom of that pit in Mariupol, uh, there may be NATO advisors among them. Uh, There will be a plethora of people from the Azov battalion the neo-Nazi folks. So not only that, but they have the upper hand in the South and in the East. So what's going to happen? Well, America's going to be totally confused because we've all been led to believe by the media that we're winning, that Russia's taking it on the chin. So what's going to happen? Well, what I fear is going to happen is a false flag attack which would be blamed on Russia, Uh, WMD, probably chemical weapons, and biden will be a war president once again and not least he'll seem real strong as the midterm elections approach in november uh, that's my fear uh, it's not really my prediction but uh, things are, are deteriorated to the point where that is almost likely.
2: You know, one of the things you say is you would be well served if, in, in this article if you widen the discussion beyond the circle of advisors clearly bent on a war for which we see no compelling reason and from which we believe the unintended consequences are likely to be catastrophic. It reminds me, that brings me back to General Tommy Frank saying that Douglas Fife, Fife was the stupidest man on the face of the earth. I, It seems glaringly obvious that Joe Biden has surrounded himself with a bunch of Douglas Fythes. Um, Your thoughts on who he could talk to and if there's any possibility of that happening.
0: He could listen to this show. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Great. Well, he could
5: listen to this show. I mean, we have had uh, Scott Ritter. You've had other people on who know a little bit about the military situation. Let's face it, none of his advisors ever put on a uniform, for God's sake. I mean, except if you you, you include General Milley, and his uniform doesn't fit anymore in many senses. So we've got a bunch of nincompoops uh, who think they know everything and don't know anything about war, as opposed to the Russians who, you know, suffered... 26 million Soviets killed in World War II. We're celebrating the 77th anniversary of that next week. Um, this is different. They know what war is like, and they fear a threat from NATO and from Ukraine. If the U.S. keeps putting in the kinds of missiles that Khrushchev tried to put in Cuba back in 1962, it's 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 a perfect analogy. Uh, we, We considered that an existential threat, and we didn't allow it. And we were smart enough to get out of that thing peacefully. Right now, the Russians are thinking of the buildup in Ukraine, Romania, Poland, you name it, as an existential threat. They decided to get rid of that existential threat. And the thing that I think gave them the moxie to do that Was the undivided support of President Xi Jinping of China, who pretty much winked at his longstanding policy of not interfering in, you know, no interference in the the affairs of other countries. He sort of gave Putin a waiver on that. Now, that could not be bigger. If Russia and China together now, when push comes to shove, Putin won't probably have to use a nuclear weapon uh, he'll just call on C and say, look, could you stir up a little trouble out there in East, uh, in, in Asia? Because uh, even, even people like General Milley uh, will shy away from a two-front war, and that should
0: calm down
5: things back here in Europe.
0: You offer in this memo a 12-point fact sheet, and you write, some of us were intelligence analysts during the Cuban Missile Crisis and see a direct parallel in Ukraine. How so? Well, let me give a a personal
5: uh, observation here. Um, I was commissioned in 1961, entered active duty at Fort Benning, the Army Infantry School, as a young first uh, second lieutenant infantry intelligence officer on the 3rd of November 1962. Guess what? There were no weapons at the infantry school in Fort Benning. We wanted, to, we wanted to test out these real fancy new grenade launchers and things like that. There weren't any. Where were they? They were in Key West, Florida. Why? Because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were that ready to go. OK, so that was close. And it took Kennedy. It took Kennedy and his guts and his insistence that Russian experts participate in these discussions, I have in mind Ambassador Llewellyn Thompson, who had just come out of Moscow and who was uh, pretty much responsible for helping Kennedy resolve the thing peacefully. Now, why do I mention all that? Well, because the situation is very similar now, if you look at it from the Soviet perspective, from the Russian perspective, I should say, and uh, that, that makes things dangerous. The more so... Since there's no Llewellyn Thompson around on the U.S. side anymore, and these young people that think they know what's best for the United States don't have any experience of war, and they're dismissing the notion that when uncharacteristically, actually almost uniquely, Russian leaders Raise the prospect of having to use nuclear weapons, that that doesn't mean anything. That's an empty, empty threat. Well, let's hope it's an empty threat. It's it's uh, the problem is that this has never been uh, it's never been a quarter full uh, until now. Now it's not empty anymore. And if Biden pays heed just to these folks. And that's why we sh- we say he should widen his circle of advisors. You know, he's going to do something really stupid. Uh, he- he's going to let them persuade the polls to do something stupid. The polls always can be counted upon to do whatever they think, to give the Russians a bloody nose, and the flag will be up. So last thing I'll say is that this Representative Kinzinger has a, uh, a proposal for legislation creating right. a red line a red line Mm -hmm. against this: the Russians using what he calls WMD, okay, weapons of mass destruction that includes chemical, biological, and nuclear. Now, what's my fear? My fear is that once the Russians start definitively winning, which I predict will be in about 10 days, uh, there's going to be a chemical, Mm -hmm. a chemical. Back. And it's going to be a false flag. And they're going to say, oh, the Russians have meant to launch the chemical attack. And that will put Biden in the position of being a real war president. And uh, he, he's going to be you know, strutting around saying now, now we've got to move on these folks. And the problem is, you know, this is Putin's neighborhood. Uh, you're not going to move on Putin without all these arms becoming destroyed.
0: Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Most welcome. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Warmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. According to The Guardian, Ukrainian refugee left homeless after UK host demanded bill and money. A Ukrainian refugee has been left homeless just days after moving in with a host in Brighton who demanded money from her to pay for utility bills. Is this an example of a much larger problem? As some Afghan evacuees who've resettled in Washington. Uh After fleeing, the Taliban are now struggling to pay their rent and stave off eviction after grappling with unemployment and exhausting the limited government aid they've received. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist, analyst and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup and America's Undeclared War. Dan Lazar As always Dan. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So there's all of this discussion about we got to support Ukraine. We love Ukraine. We got to love the Ukrainian people. And these refugees now find themselves in, we'll just say, less than accepting circumstances. And I use the example of what's happening in the Washington region with Afghan uh, evacuees who are now also finding themselves falling upon very hard times. Yeah, well, in, uh, in Germany, Afghan
6: refugees have actually been, been displaced to make way for, for, uh, for Ukrainian uh, refugees. It's amazing. But being a refugee is, is really bad, um, and it's bad all around. It's obviously bad for the refugee, him or herself, and it's bad for the host country because refugees cost money. And, and when enough come in, they strain budgets. And they, you know, they cause government expenditures to rise. Uh, they create all kinds of unpleasant secondary effects. So, it, you know, it's a, it's a financial strain. It's no surprise. And, uh, and the war in the Ukraine has generated, I think it's 5.5 million refugees. And that's the latest, uh, latest figure. The U.S. is taking in a whopping 100,000, which means the Europeans are, are being saddled with essentially 98% of the remainder. Uh, and this is not the first time this has happened, because in 2015, uh, U.S. policies in the Middle East uh, created a giant wave of refugees uh, from the from North Africa, and the Middle East, into uh, into Europe. It uh, led tragically to hundreds of deaths of people, you know, people who are trying to cross the, uh, the Aegean or the Mediterranean in small boats and, and drowned. Um, it created a racial tension. Uh, it created a lot of really bad stuff. It created a, a powerful xenophobic backlash, which is still being felt in, uh, in Europe. Um, so, so the U.S. created the, the two, 2015 crisis due to its own unnecessary wars in the Middle East, Iraq, Libya, Syria, etc., cetera, um, and, and now it's doing the same thing by creating, laying the basis for uh, a completely unnecessary war in the Ukraine. I not, don't want to let Vladimir Putin off the hook, but nonetheless, The U.S. and NATO are 90 percent responsible for this this calamity.
2: Dan, we see some chickens coming home to roost. There's an article, Poland's resources running dry as Ukrainian refugee crisis continue. uh, Volunteers aren't showing up as frequently. Housing is harder to find. Jobs are scarce and schools are nearly out of money. Gee, who saw that? Who didn't see that coming, Dan? And here's my point. This is not rocket science. The Russians were like, look, you're turning Ukraine into a military base to attack us cut it out and put it in writing. This wasn't real complicated. And the Poles were one of the no, we will not do whatever you you do. Don't do anything the Russians want. Do not go along with them. Do not listen to them. And the chickens are coming home to roost. They're going to run out of money. Oh, now they don't have, they're not getting Russian gas. And the last I heard, they were getting secondary Russian gas from the Germans and the Russians are like, we're going to put a halt to that. So the chickens are coming home to roost. And I believe, I mean, God knows run, not having gas is going to destroy the industry in Europe, which, of course, we know the neocons want. I believe this wave of Ukrainian refugees, some of whom have, have a very questionable ideology, is going to be the maybe the biggest disaster
0: for these people. At any rate, I've said a lot, Dan. Let me add two things uh, to that, Dan. One is a lot of this, I believe, is Poland didn't think that President Putin would do what he said he was going to do. The United States didn't think that they tried to call his bluff and they got played. And the second part of this is, I think this, also, this, this refugee crisis highlights the fact that it's never really about the people that we claim it's about, that the people are merely fodder for imperialist interests. Um, Poland, Poland is a, a sick country. I mean
6: uh, it's it's dominated by Yaroslav Kaczynski, this 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 party leader of the law and justice party, this really strange guy, whose twin brother died in a plane crash in I think two thousand twelve in uh, in Russia. That 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 his twin brother blames on Russia, even though there's absolutely no evidence that it's the case, the the, the the crash was an accident. It may have been due to the fact that the, the politicians on board were pushing to, to – uh, pushing the pilot to land in a fog-shrouded airport, which is an extremely risky thing to do. But Poland is seized by a powerful anti-Russian animus. It has looked to the U.S. for support, and the U.S. has encouraged that animus over the years. Poland should have striven for a modus vivendi with Russia. Instead, due to its alliance with the U.S., it has embarked upon the most hateful, confrontational policy with that country. And as a result, all hell is breaking out. Poland finds itself, um, uh, you know, flooded with refugees. Uh, It finds itself in grave danger of being dragged into a war, which will result in national ruin. Um, and it's finding the U.S. is very happy to fight this war from afar while letting its allies bear the risk. So, so, so Poland's, Poland's foolish, reckless policy has essentially brought it to a dead end. And, and the only – the people who deserve blame for that are the far-right, bigoted,
2: anti-Semitic, anti-communist people who run that country. Speaking of those people, uh, there's an an interesting article. uh, Zelensky, grateful to, as of neo-Nazis, claims Ukraine hardly has any radicals. Here's the thing. As I see it right now, what I think we're all saying is this. The U.S. went in there and used these Nazis and Russia-hating people. It used their anger and hatred against Russia, twisted it around behind their back, used it behind them, and now it's allowing them to destroy themselves, hopefully not destroy them all. But in the same way that the Ukrainian Nazis have been used— the, the, the far right in Poland is being used, and they're like, yay, the U.S. is on our side, and the U.S. is like, yeah, we're on your side, all right, you suckers, and now they're, they're being destroyed, and I guess they think the United States is gonna help them out, as did the Kurds in 1991. I suspect they will learn. Your thoughts?
6: Yes, I mean, first of all, number one is, the, is this, this, this U.S. line, this NATO line, that, that, that Nazism in the, in the Ukraine is a figment of Russia's imagination, That is complete nonsense. Complete nonsense. Stefan Bandera, the the country's uh, pro-Nazi wartime collaborator leader, is a very popular figure in much of the country. I mean, uh, dozens, literally dozens of cities have put up plaques or statues in his honor. The, in 2019, um, the city of Lvov in the western Ukraine, which is the, the capital of Ukrainian ultranationalism, declared nine, 2019 to be the year of Stepan Bandera. Bandera killed thousands of Jews and upwards of 100,000 Poles, by the way, as part of an ethnic cleansing operation that broke out in mid-1943. So, so the, the idea that this is all of signal of Russia's imagination, that it's russian propaganda is is the the big lie straight out of orwell um, and uh, and and it's the real weak part of the of the of the of the war effort because it shows the war is that the basis for the war is completely mendacious the same way it was in, in syria when the, uh, when the when the when when the official us uk line is the Syrian rebels, of course, had nothing to do with Al Qaeda. It was ridiculous. Of course, they were all heavily under the influence and under the command of Al Qaeda. That anybody looked into into that war in a serious way found out that was the truth. And and neo Nazis are are influential at all levels of the Ukrainian government. In fact, um. Uh, Andre Bolitsky, the founder of the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion, says the Azov Battalion now has, quote, scores and scores and scores of thousands of followers as a result of the war. He told us to the, to the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago. So this is a country which is riddled with neo-Nazis, yet the U.S. is, you know, is flooding it with, with weapons. And declaring it the great struggle for freedom, and it's nonsense. It's a total lie. And it's a lie, by the way, that the, that will eventually catch up with the administration.
0: And won't it also, over time, catch up with the American people as, in so many instances, the people that we're backing now, the people that we're funding and training and arming, are the very people that we will find ourselves fighting in the very near future? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, and Donald Trump got himself
6: into big trouble in Charlottesville, Virginia, was that in 2018, I believe, by saying there were good people on both sides of a neo-Nazi and anti-Nazi demonstration. That was a terrible thing for Trump to say. He deserved all the, all the abuse he got. But, uh, but, but essentially, today's Democrats are saying the same thing by whitewashing. The huge Nazi presence in uh, in the Ukraine, and yes, the American people will will get wise to it. And and, and Nazis are not popular in America. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Americans
0: uh, still remember World War II. Well, apparently they school- are because we're sending them thirty three billion dollars in the Ukraine
2: on Capitol Hill. On <laughs> Capitol, on Capitol Hill, not, it's Capitol Hill. It's not, it's not
6: America. And you know, and and uh, you know, I mean, Americans. I, I mean, I, I remember the. I remember the controversy over the Bitburg cemetery, in uh, in, in the nineteen in nineteen eighty five, I believe it was, mm-hmm. when you know when when Reagan ran into a buzzsaw because he wanted to uh, was he wanted to pay his respects to a, a German military c- cemetery that, that included SS men and all these aging World War Two veterans. That for Christ's sakes, we didn't you know we didn't we didn't fight that war. We didn't put our lives on the line to lay flowers on the graves of F- SS men. Well, listen. Their children are now. Their the politicians are now sending military aid to to people who celebrate the SS. Literally, celebrate the SS in uh, in the Ukraine.
0: Daniel Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece in Black Agenda Report entitled The OAS, or the Ministry of Colonies. On April 24th, 2022, Nicaragua's Sandinista government officially booted the Organization of American States, the OAS, out of their country. Foreign Minister Dennis Moncada called the OAS a deceitful agency of the State Department of Yankee Imperialism, and in an official statement, the Nicaraguans proclaimed that they will not recognize this instrument of colonial administration, which does not represent at any time the Soviet Union or Latin or Caribbean America, and that violates rights and independences sponsoring and promoting interventions and invasions and legitimizing coups. It's a pretty strong position to take. Oh, and it's accurate. What is the U.S. to do? What about the Monroe Doctrine? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's an associate professor of black studies and anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles, a member of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor of the Black Agenda Review segment of the Black Agenda Report. Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always, welcome back.
7: Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here.
0: So this is a pretty aggressive, damning, and accurate statement. Uh, what type of shift in the region does this indicate to you?
7: Well, I, we, it's, it's yet to be seen, but we, um, we hope that this shift will come sooner than later. I have to say the Nicaraguans are lucky. Um, to 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 get rid of the OAS and um, and to get rid of this this you know what and the title for my piece for example comes out of what Castro called the Yankee Ministry of of Colonies <laughs> of Fidel Castro and so yeah so I, I think I'm hoping especially with what's going on in Ukraine and the shift to multipolarity that you know the Caribbean and Latin American organizations or states will follow the lead of Venezuela which was the first state to to leave the OAS, um, and then um, and Nicaragua. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if your uh, uh, your audience knows, but, you know, Hugo Chavez Venezuela started this new organization called the Community of Latin American Caribbean States, they're like, and we're hoping that that will be, you know, the organization that people go to.
2: You know, I think one of the things that this Ukrainian crisis has demonstrated is the contradiction of empire and the hypocrisy in that the, univ- uh, the, the U.S. empire will say, said, Russia has no sphere of influence in a country one millimeter from their border. We can pump all the weapons we want on. We can train all the Nazis we want. They have no right to say anything. Meanwhile, the U.S. says the Solomon Islands is a red line. If China tries to build a base 7,391 miles from our shore, we may have to attack the Solomon Islands. Haiti, well, they're just, they don't even count. We can do anything we want in Haiti, lie, cheat, steal, and overthrow their government. It's, I think this Ukraine crisis has demonstrated pro- Profoundly, the um, the contradiction of empire and the hypocrisy. Your thoughts, Dr. Pierre?
7: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the hypocrisy on a number of levels. You know, let's let's also talk about the fact that you have 100,000 Ukrainians jump, you know, jumping uh, immigrants jumping ahead of of Haitians and Central uh, Central Americans stuck at the U.S. Mexico border. (laughs) Remember, so there's there's that. But you're absolutely right, and one of the reasons uh, for me writing this was the fact that i knew that once this news came out that people would focus on uh, rightly so venezuela bolivia honduras where the OAS is you know has a terrible history especially venezuela and supporting one guaidó for example who's never been elected but everyone forgets haiti and and i call haiti one of the major crime scenes of the OAS because and people don't talk about haiti and that the fact that even if you look at the past 20 years alone Haiti is a de facto colony of of the West of Europe and the U.S. right now in the core group. And that all goes back to the help. And that that would not have happened without the help of the OAS. So back in 2000, when Aristide was in power, the uh, the, the popular president was in power, the OAS was used as a way to delegitimize its election results of its, you know, of, you know, of, of, Thousands of Senate and uh, and local e- elections, and they 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 use that, and so the elections were fair, but then they came around and said the elections were deeply flawed, and then the U.S. used that as a way to put an embargo on Aristide and fund opposition groups, which actually led to the 2004 coup d'état, and then the OAS came in again in 2010 and installed this right-wing PHDK party, Michel Martelly and, and Jovenel Moise. You know, so, so the past 10 years, which Haiti has been under the dictatorship of this political, this right-wing, devaluous party, has all be, been because of the OAS. They changed the election results in 2010 in Haiti and in 2015. And it's, the outrage of that is, 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 you know, the the lack of outrage, I should say, is ridiculous. and And the fact that they can get away with it and continue to get away with it is, is, is a problem and I'm hoping that Nicaragua now that it's taking the building the former building of the OAS and turning it into a museum of shame um to talk about imperialism, I'm hoping that you know the rest of the, the, the region will wake up and, and follow suit.
0: Not only is the OAS involved here, but talk about the core group, because you write, it must also be remembered that since 2004, Haiti has been under foreign occupation that began as full-fledged military control and continues through the political colonial control of the country by the UN's core group. The core group, an unelected, self-styled Council of Foreign Western Representatives, plays an active interventionist role in Haiti's everyday political affairs. The OAS is an active member of the Core group
7: yes definitely so after the coup d'etat you know uh in 2004 which was led by u.s canada and france um you had and then you know u.s and, and france have a, a seat in the security council and they managed to convince the u.n to send a military occupation to haiti out of that occupation comes the core group you're right and so it's these groups where it you know has members the, the eu has representatives in it the the, the um and very specific countries in Europe, like Spain and Germany, um, a couple of countries in Latin America, like Brazil, but the OAS is an active member. And the core group really makes all the decisions these days about Haiti. So, so when the, the Jovenel Moïse was assassinated in, 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 sub, in July 2021, it was the core group that issued the first statement on who should be the next leader, who should be the next prime minister. And so they decide everything that goes on because they're part of the UN military, military and a civilian political control of Haiti. And the OAS is always brought in under the guise of, you know, we're here for election support and democracy, but the OAS is, you know, carries out, you, know, you might as well say it's just the U.S. that runs the core group because the OAS... Is an instrument of the US. The US pays the most money to it. It has its office in Washington, D.C. It was created, and this is an important thing for us, especially in terms of thinking about Ukraine and NATO. It was created a year in 1948 before NATO, which was created in 1949. But it was also supposed it was a right-wing organization from the very beginning that had as original members. Dictators like Somoza in Nicaragua and Batista in Cuba. And so this was a right-wing organization that the U.S. created in the region before it created, you know, its, uh, its, its, it's the NATO in Europe. And so the OAS really is this ministry of the colonies that is used for U.S. imperialism. And I think the more people know this. The, the better, and 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 that's why, as it, with its role in the core group in Haiti, we know that it has a direct hand, especially to this latest uh, secretary general, Luis Almagro, who's a corrupt. Um, and right-wing um, uh, secretary-general, we know then that we need, you know, major decolonization efforts um, in Haiti uh, to get rid of OAS and the core group.
2: You know, the other thing you write is the OAS is but one of the many Western international organizations that uphold an unequal racial and economic order. To the OAS, we can add the UN, IMF, ICC, WTO, NATO, and others. Uh, your thoughts on that?
7: That's exactly it, and that's the, the so-called... Uh, rule-based international order, which is white supremacist and <laughs> European. And you can look at all these organizations, how they impact the rest of the world. The UN, for example, was behind the, the fall of Patrick Lumumba. We can go back to, you know, 1960. The U.S. has always been wielded. If you look at the U.S.-U.N. peacekeeping uh, so-called peacekeeping missions, they're in all these places in the global South and Eastern Europe where the where the U.S. and the West wanted to maintain its power. And Haiti has had a terrible um, uh, experience under the U.N. with this military occupation that's brought cholera, that killed 40,000 people, um, that, you know, uh, rapes and murders. That the, and then the IMF is, is the wing, right? It's the economic wing of, of, of the imperial West, right? And, and the ICC, which only convicts African leaders, <laughs> Where you know the u s you know the u s leaders should all be under the prison in the i c c right for their for their illegal um um you know bombing of iraq um, afghanistan you know and all these other places, and then you have the w t o which we which we can remember in terms of vaccine apartheid um you know uh, against you know during covid which, which we're still under. And then NATO, of course, we know. And then to that, I can add USAID, which is a wing of the CIA, the National Endowment for Democracy. So all these white supremacists, I call them white supremacist organizations um, that supposedly are international, that supposedly are part of the you know democratic, world based order, are nothing but you know um, uh, uh, organizations to uphold Western imperialism.
0: Not only the, the ICC, but the World Bank. And I think it's it's I think it's important for people to understand how those two so-called lending mechanisms, uh, I'd call them loan shark mechanisms, operate. And this is a huge issue as it relates to China because china and and China's international bank are now is now holding itself out as, an option, a very viable option to countries instead of going to the and being controlled by the World Bank loans and ICC loans I'm, I'm sorry, and IMF loans. IMF.
7: Yeah. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. And I think more countries, especially on the African continent, are turning to China. And Of course, you have all these right wing left or even some leftists saying, oh, well, you know, China's imperialism on the African continent. But I'm just like, do you know the history of the IMF and the World Bank on the African continent since the end of colonization? Because you know, as Dr. Gerald Horn would say, this is a counter-revolutionary movement that uses e- e- economics to maintain neocolonialism. That IMF and the World Bank is exactly that. It basically killed social services. It forced these new governments to stop spending on their people instead to, to and then force them into these loans and then force them into debt servicing. Um, and then IMF and, the, and, and World Bank loans are used as a way to to, to push U.S. and Western fo- um, policies. And so I think those things were, those two, or the IMF and the World Bank, which, by the way, were there to actually help rebuild Europe after World War II and then turned on the, on, on the Global South as a, as a weapon of imperialism, economic and otherwise, is, you know, these are the organizations I think they all need to be disbandled. The they all represent the, you you know the Western white supremacist imperial order that we need to we need to really free ourselves from
2: I think the other thing is that's important that Nicaragua did was and, and they've been attacked for um, uh, uh, jailing they as they say opposition forces but what they actually did was they made it, they uh, made it illegal for the nonprofit uh, organizations to hide where they were getting money which they were all getting it from the CIA and when these people refused to do it they, they shut them down and they locked many of them up. And I think it was a good strategy. I think that's what countries have to do if they're going to survive with all of this money coming in underhandedly and these fake NGOs to take them down. Your thoughts?
0: Before you respond, it's also important to remember that what they're doing in those countries are the very same thing that it's illegal in this country to take money from an outside entity to influence an American election. So they did the same thing in Nicaragua and other countries that the United
7: States has been doing. No, you, that, that's, that's absolutely, uh, absolutely right. And I do think these or, you know, these NGOs, all these non-government organizations are just another arm of the CIA and and, and U.S. imperialism. Because the truth is, if you look for if you go to the website of the National Endowment for Democracy and you look at the supposed activist organizations in Haiti, for example, all of them you know, are funded by the the USAID, the National Endowment for Democracy, and there's the so-called NGOs, right? And so you have, you have the so-called, you have these NGOs go there to really shape policy, to open up the population, to accept really draconian policies, and to also kill whatever activist movement there is. And that's what the national endowment for democracy has done is basically gone in, and then it's the cheap way, right? Instead of, you know, the U S is sending billions of dollars to Ukraine in Haiti, they can just give a, a so-called local nonprofit organization, you know, eight, you know, $800,000 over five years. And that's enough for them or not even that much, $30,000 for the year. And so these, I do think these, the way for us, the, the true move towards liberation and decolonization is to get rid of all these Western organizations, the, and the, the NGOs from 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 these countries.
0: Stay with me, please, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Dr. Jamima Pierre, thank you so much. But stay with me. Uh, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. Eight months on, Taliban's rule is far from stable. Resistance groups are mounting an increasingly potent challenge to the Taliban and may have Pakistan's clandestine support. How problematic is this for the region going forward? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a journalist, social activist, international business consultant, and chemical engineer, George Koo. As always, George, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be back. So the Asia Times reports that the Taliban's fractious regime is far from stable, either politically, economically or geostrategically. The poor economic situation with the country careening towards widespread famine is only one side of the Taliban's problem. Emerging power centers within Afghanistan pose a direct challenge to the Taliban's claims to be the only representative party or power wielder. And those competing political forces are making their point in an explosive fashion. George, particularly on the economic side, with the United States having seized Afghanistan's assets, this, A, looks like this is exactly what the United States was intending to happen. And now, as we hear uh, Lloyd Austin say that this whole thing in Ukraine is about squeezing Russia— it sounds like this is the tactic that the American government is imposing on all of its enemies.
8: Well, uh, yeah, it, it, I, I, I completely agree with your uh, observation. Just instability and chaos is what we go around the world introducing because out of chaos, um, we we, the U.S., you know, become the remaining and or only power that that uh, remains standing. And the situation in Afghanistan shouldn't surprise anybody because it was always a fractious, multi, multi-tribal, multi-religion, multi—you know—fractions in the country. And so now the Taliban used to be. The agitator. Once they take over, you, you you expect the others to to agitate against it, and certainly by with by confiscating whatever pitiful reserve that they had with the U.S., that certainly made it worse. It made it even more difficult for Taliban to um, to maintain control or to regain control uh, of the country, and, and that's what we want. We have our tails beaten as we leave after 20 years, and we would hate to see Taliban, who we were opposing all along, to just suddenly come in and, uh, and show that uh, that's all it took was for the Af- Taliban to, control- to take over and everything is hunky-dory. That's not going to happen with a U.S. watch
2: Yeah. uh, You know, I I, I think that when I look at this and whenever I see that there are some groups in a country that are using terror or violence or whatever to try to overthrow the standing government, even if that standing government is the Taliban. I suspect that the U.S. empire is behind it, that right now, when I look at what happened in Pakistan with the U.S. being involved in the coup um, there over Imran Khan, obviously, when I look at um, the destabilization in Afghanistan, and then then they argue, and the Pakistani intelligence may be involved, it kind of all comes together that that's an area... The CIA, the intelligence community did not want to lose to be able to, uh, you know, foment problems and to um, to to block the Belt and Road Initiative and to still maintain a way to the Xinjiang area so they could, you know, right over there near Pakistan. So it just seems to me they're up to their old tricks in Afghanistan right now. They they left in 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 physical form, but not in spirit. How about that? Your thoughts?
8: Well, (laughs) yeah, I I think. Uh, disorder is, is the rule of the day, and, and that's in the—I don't know why it is. I can't explain it, but it is in quote-unquote American foreign policy interest, is to make sure um, every everybody is at each other's throat and there's no unity, I guess in a way, so they couldn't be unified against America, and maybe that's one reason. And you know, uh, w- without being on the ground and observing and, and documenting, I, I, I simply can only agree with your observation that this is perfectly within the, uh, the CIA, State Department modus operandi. You know, they don't. I mean, in in Pakistan, I'm sure they're supporting um, the what, what was it called, Balakstan, uh rebels. And supplying them with, with whatever they need to to cause problems. They certainly don't want to see China corridor, that uh, economic corridor that China is doing in Pakistan, succeeds. They don't. Uh, they don't want to see China make use of the harbor at Guara um, because that would um, provide some China logistics advantage by bypassing the Indian Ocean, the streets of Malacca, the South China Sea. So there's there's that kind of uh, motivation. They don't want China to go into Afghanistan and make that part of the belt and road because China is really the only uh, foreign power in Afghanistan that could be in a position to help the Taliban government um, straighten out the problems and Put in the economic stimulus, but China is not willing to do that until they're assured of stability. Um, they're not going to walk into an inst- a unstable situation and put their nationals at risk, put their investments at risk, and they're not in the American mode of sending the troops in to put in to put in order and and violate the sovereignty or whatever come government that's in control of of that country. So I feel very badly and very sorry for Afghanistan and Pakistan. The two problems are really interrelated, and it has to do—we can't all blame it on CIA because it has to do with religious strife, and there's no worse human conflict than when you think God is on your side— and and the devil is on the other
0: side. How much of this will turn into be careful what you wish for because you just might get it, in, in that creating a power vacuum as the United States, I think as will result if the United States is successful in its machinations in Afghanistan, this to me is becoming eerily reminiscent to what the United States did in Libya. Yeah. Um,
8: well, the, I guess the difference is that in Libya— the 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 uh, the plane, the U- American, France, and, and the UK planes actively participate in destroying Qaddafi's uh, forces, which uh, and greatly weaken his control to the point that um, the rebels can can go in and take him apart. Um, that stage is past as far as Afghanistan is concerned, and I, I don't I don't see U.S. wanting to go in. At this point, I think the U.S. strategy is get everybody else to fight their battle and and, and die on their behalf and fulfill their mission.
0: What I meant by that really was the outcome, the fact that uh, Gaddafi warned Obama— about the people in the north, you know, you, you you take me out, you create this vacuum. You're opening a Pandora's box. The the likes of or the result of which you will not be able to control. And I see a very similar thing happening through different machinations. But the United States creating a vacuum in Afghanistan, and once that fuse is lit. We won't be able to control the uh, the outcome. That 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 was really my point.
8: Okay. Point taken. And I'm not sure the uh, the White House folks uh, she can, has the vision to see that far. I think that all they care about is disruption and also cr- the, the immediate fallout. Maybe as you mentioned earlier in this program, the the terrorism in Xinjiang. I mean that's. Directly related to Afghanistan and and somewhat Pakistan, because those trained and experienced um, terrorists, um, you know, one of the logical places to go to go back to, the, especially the ethnic Uyghurs, is to go back to Xinjiang and put to practice and what they have been trained for, and um, you know, where else can they practice their
2: Um, I also think we're seeing, you know, an empire that's in real trouble. I mean, you see what's happening in Ukraine. You see this Solomon's Island debacle, Um, the um, basically the left and socialists, um, democratic socialist um, uh, forces uh, are just taking over all over in Latin America and uh, anti-imperialist forces in last Latin America and um, and the Caribbean. And here they're stumbling and bumbling, trying to hold back the forces of independent nations such as Imran Khan and et cetera. It seems to yeah. me that this is just a desperate, it's almost like a drowning man reaching in every direction to dra- grab anything he can to pull himself out of the water. Your thoughts?
8: Yeah, well, I think you're bringing up Solomon Island as a really excellent example, because Australia and the United States pay virtually no attention to Solomon Island uh, uh, for many, many decades, and I mean, they throw a crumb over their ostensibly to help them. And all of a sudden, when Solomon Island decides to turn to China for assistance, uh, and China then you know, and then enter a security agreement so that the investments in Solomon Island will be protected. All of a sudden, U.S. throw start to throw money at Solomon Island. I mean, after the fact, they I think more than, um, like, ten times more aid to the island. That's not the main island, but one of the side island that's known to be anti-China and pro-Taiwan. You know, instead of I forgot the number now, but. Instead of something like $50,000, they end up with, what, about a quarter of a million, or in any case, the ratio is right. The numbers, I'm, I'm not sure what it is. So, same thing is happening around the world. In Latin America, the U.S. has always considered that to be their own backyard, and they don't need to pay any attention. They don't have to do anything. And now, all of a sudden, China is there to help with the infrastructure, help them develop the economy, and it's probably going to be too, way too late for the U.S. to do anything about it.
0: And so, to Garland's point about the flailing empire and, and the the gasps of the drowning man, I, I you know, we say on the show all the time, imperial hegemons don't go quietly into the night.
8: Well, that certainly is a is a source of concern because. The the extreme scenario that you're hinting at is is possibly a nuclear holocaust to uh, to emphasize the last desperate gas of the United States. I sure hope that won't happen, but uh, you know um, when it happens, if it happens, and when it happens. It, it may be a little too late for the American people to finally wake up and say, "Boy, we sure got, we sure have to change the rules of the game. We're going to have to get rid of the military and industrial complex and make sure that they don't get rich on warfare and on on, on conflict."
2: I think the one saving grace, if there is one, as odd as this may be, is that if we are fortunate enough. This is going to sound weird. There'll be such an economic collapse prior to that happening that the uprisings from inside Europe will take the really take the U.S. empire apart. In that, that, that Europe will collapse as part of its, you know, its the biggest part of its um, machine, and that the same may be true for us because the the the, the economic collapse is going to be horrific. Your thoughts? Unfortunately,
8: uh, uh, first of all, I agree with you, but secondly a weakened EU or a torn apart EU is actually fits with what US and UK would like to see. They don't want a a rivalry uh in the in EU. So so it's a good news, bad news situation from the US from the Biden administration's point of view. I think what's gonna be very interesting to watch is the midterm election and of course the next presidential election, whether what will happen uh, in those situations. And, you know, ironically, in the meantime, somebody need to explain to me why the dollar is getting stronger not weaker in the near term, boy, I sure can't figure that out.
0: <laughs> we got to get out. George Ku thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to be with you guys. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Warmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is a piece in Orinoco Tribune entitled Notes from War-Torn Ethiopia, Part 3. Crimes of the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. The discovery of mass graves and underground prisons in Ethiopia has exposed the crimes of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, the U.S. puppets who tyrannize Ethiopia for 27 years with divide and conquer ethnic politics from 1991 to 2018 when a popular uprising forced them from power. What are we to make of this? What does it tell us about America's commitment to sovereignty and democracy? And is this eerily reminiscent of American hegemony of years gone by. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John J. and Rebe- Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He is one of our most prolific writers of our time. His forthcoming book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn. as always, sir, Welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So U.S. officialdom and both state and corporate media in the U.S. have since described the Ethiopian conflict as the government's persecution of the Tigrayan People's Front and the Tigrayan people. What is wrong with this, what I'll call a contextual and a historic perspective?
9: Well, I think it's important to put this conflict in the Horn of Africa in a wider Perspective. Whenever I go on black radio, which of late has been frequent, the comparison oftentimes arises between how the United States has reacted to the crisis in Central and Eastern Europe versus how the United States has reacted to the crisis in the Horn of Africa, uh, speaking of the conflict that you just made reference to in Ethiopia, and not to mention the conflict across the Red Sea, in Yemen, where the United States has armed its Saudi ally to the teeth, who have been bombing and persecuting the Yemenis mercilessly. And I think that that is an apt comparison, and I think I should also mention that the United States is not pleased or happy uh, with the regime in Addis Ababa, not least because It has not necessarily signed on to the sanctions regime against Russia in light of the crisis in Central and Eastern Europe. As well, uh, Ethiopia is a major node for the Belt and Road Initiative of the People's Republic of China. And in fact, uh, Ethiopia is quite happy uh, with the fact that China has been quite uh, useful in helping to sponsor infrastructure projects that in some ways serves as a model for other African nations to follow. Similarly, you are probably aware of the fact that the U.S. ally that is Egypt is also displeased with the Addis Ababa regime. As you know, conflict between Ethiopia and Egypt stretches back millennia. And what is happening today is just the most current manifestation of a fundamental conflict that oftentimes turns, as this one does, on the Nile River. In this instance, the Ethiopians building the Grand Renaissance Dam, which the Egyptians charge is a threat to their lifeblood. Speaking of the Nile River, uh, about a decade ago, captured on tape somehow, were mutterings at the highest level in Cairo about regime change uh, in uh, Ethiopia. In fact, I've speculated, although admittedly I do not have direct evidence, that with regard to this recently apparently concluded conflict between Tigran forces and the central government, I'd always suspected that the hand of Cairo, which then, of course, would be somehow manipulated by the hand of Washington, could be found in that conflict, although, once again, I do not have direct evidence for that supposition. But in any case, I think that's part of the context that needs to be understood when one seeks to parse this conflict in the Horn of Africa, in Washington's response.
2: You know, I think there's another article, but I think this is all one issue. There's another article, Canada and the overthrow of Kwame Nkrumah, that discusses Canada's part in that. But it really gets into detail. And one of the important things I think that they discuss is that Kwame Nkrumah and a number of other African leaders and world leaders at that time that were pushing towards non-alignment. And we're hearing that word today about particularly India. So your thoughts on um, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, on the story of what happened with him and Canada's involvement, and how that relates to the issue of non-alignment today?
9: Well, I found that article to be quite intriguing. It confirms much of what we already knew. That is to say, the Nkrumah regime in Accra, Ghana, West Africa, was targeted early on by the North Atlantic powers. Kwame Nkrumah, as you know, was educated in part in the United States at Lincoln University, the historically black school in Pennsylvania, was quite close to many black Americans. And in fact, when he came to power in 1957, uh, he opened the door to a major influx of black Americans, which ultimately included uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and his spouse Shirley Graham Du Bois, uh, Maya Angelou, the late architect uh, Max Bond from Harlem, amongst others. He designed For example, the Schomburg Library on 135th and Malcolm X in the heart of Harlem, an architectural jewel. And the fact that Mr. Nkrumah was opening his doors to black Americans, many of whom were on the left. Uh, Speaking of Du Bois, speaking also of Du Bois' comrade W. Alpheus Hunton, uh, who, like Du Bois, was a member of the U.S. Communist Party. Uh, That uh, led to a fevered response uh, in Washington, ultimately led to the early 1966 overthrow of Kwame Nkrumah when he was on a peace mission trying to resolve the conflict in Indochina. Uh, The fact is that the Nkrumah regime was also targeted because of its attempt to resolve the Congo crisis. Recall that Mr. Nkrumah was quite close to Patrice Lumumba. Uh, slain at the behest of the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency circa 1961. Mr. Nkrumah also had opened his doors to uh, other left-wing exiles from throughout Africa, and in fact, throughout the world. And uh, there were very uh, prominent and important uh, diplomatic legations from the then Soviet Union and China uh, in Accra, Ghana. I've oftentimes thought, and uh, I'll, I'll put this out for a younger scholar, that someone really needs to do a study of the tumultuous events of late 1965 leading up to the Nkrumah overthrow in early 1966. You could begin with the fabricated episode whereby the United States claimed that North Vietnam had attacked the U.S. ship, the Sea Turner Joy, which then led to Congress giving a blank check to Mr. Johnson, the U S president to attack uh, Vietnam, which then deepens the conflict, ultimately leading to hundreds of thousands of Indochinese and about 50 to 60,000 U S nationals being killed before the United States is forced to leave ignominiously in 1975. And then there's the September 30th, October 1st overthrow of the Sukarno regime in Indonesia. Which leads to the massacre and a kind of political genocide of many Indonesian leftists and the coming to power of General Suharto, a military dictator backed by US imperialism. And then, if you look in Africa too, prior to the Nkrumah overthrow, there are a number of other overthrows as well. The United States was really out of control at that time. It received a comeuppance, as noted, in Vietnam. But apparently that lesson was not properly ingested. And so therefore, you now have this present crisis in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, which bids fair to spin out of control rather shortly. And in that context, let me point to you a random comment in this morning's New York Times where a prominent French analyst is expressing reservations about how the United States has moved the goalposts and now has moved from supposedly propping up the Zelensky regime to weakening, per the words of Pentagon Chief White Austin of Moscow. In other words, I think that some Western Europeans are finally awakening to what is obvious, that uh, they're being played for chumps, that is to say the Europeans, and if they're not careful, the United States will lead them all over the cliff.
0: Mark Twain told us that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. As we look at the coup in Nkrumah in, in 66, the CIA engineered it, Canada operated within it. And a lot of that had to do with, uh, as Garland said, Nkrumah's deepening ties with the Soviet Union and China. Well, that now seems to be playing itself out <laughs> in here we are in, in 2022. So, so speak to... To that ongoing, uh, recurring historical or a uh, uh, problem, uh, or that 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 uh, ongoing reality, and uh, just 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 speak to that again. W- this is history repeating itself, if not rhyming.
9: Well, first of all, it may be even more problematic today than during Nkrumah's era. What I mean is, if U.S. imperialism and its acolytes in Western Europe carry forth with their demented idea of somehow not only weakening Russia, but decoupling uh, from China, which has been a theme for a few years now, inevitably there will be a search for an alternative to Russian natural resources, which inevitably leads one to Africa, Algerian natural gas, Nigerian uh, petroleum, uh, South African gold, South African palladium, etc. I don't see how the United States is going to successfully decouple itself from Russia and China. But if it somehow does, that'll put more pressure uh, by Washington on these African regimes, sometimes fragile African regimes, to their detriment, thereby leading to a replay of what happened to Nkrumah in 1966. And in that regard, I would be remiss if I failed to mention that the U.S. ambassador in early 1966 in Accra, Ghana, was a Black American, former NAACP official, Franklin Williams, whose reputation was justifiably stained from that point forward. And he opened the door for the rise of other figures, such as Colin Powell. We all recall his escapades with regard to the Uh, ill-fated 2003 uh, invasion and overthrow of Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And so we need to be on guard, not only against uh, further U.S. depredations on the African continent, but I'm afraid to say whether or not uh, some black Americans uh, may choose to play the role of stooge and puppet.
0: And and to that point, and you talked about the time you're spending on uh, African-American or black radio in this country, how do we equate or compare how the U.S. is dealing with the conflict in Eastern Europe now, and how Russia has responded to conflicts on the continent in the past. Does that, does that make sense?
9: Well, if, if I understand the thrust of your point, it, it's well known, as documented in my book, White Supremacy Confronting on the Liberation Struggles in Southern Africa, mm-hmm. that part of the legacy of the former Soviet Union, is a kind of affection from Moscow in South Africa, in Namibia, Mm -hmm. uh, in the southern cone of Africa because of Moscow's assistance to liberation movements. There we go. And that's something that Washington has difficulty in comprehending.
0: And as well as African-Americans have a problem understanding the relationship there as well.
9: Well, some do, I'm afraid to say. But uh, increasingly, I think that there is a disconnect between the kind of mass sentiment that uh, I hear on black radio And the votes in Congress, for example, of the Congressional Black Caucus or the eerie silence that comes from leaders of the NAACP and other mass organizations who are hiding under their desks, fearful (laughs) about uh, confronting or coming into conflict with what appears to be a national consensus with regard to entering a new quagmire in Central and Eastern Europe.
0: Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.